occasions, the persecution of the church and the end of the First World War are of uh, immediate connection. They're connected with our text and our letter, the letter of First Peter, uh, this evening. If you remember, the, the, when we did the introduction to First Peter, Peter wrote this letter to encourage churches throughout the, the provinces of what is today Turkey who were suffering persecution on account of their testimony to the name and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in chapter 4. But Peter calls it there in chapter 4, verse 12 of First Peter, a fiery ordeal, a trial that they were going through. And these many years later, after this letter was written, and there are Christians, our brothers and sisters, all around the world who continue to go through a fiery ordeal, to use that language from First Peter 4. And the First World War provides us with a sobering example of exactly what happens when we do not follow the word of the law that we'll read together in just a moment. The First World War involved Christian nations, Christian nations, to some degree with the support of Christian churches and, of course, individual Christians on both sides, killing each other into the millions. It's estimated that the First World War cost the lives of 16 million people. And it comes in, therefore, at around number five or six on the list of greatest human-caused losses of human life. And I say again, for the most part, these were Christian nations fighting to kill each other out of malice, envy, revenge, and the desire for power. They failed to heed the word that we'll read right now with each other from 1 Peter 1. So on that sobering note, I'm not going to stay sober all evening, but it is worth remembering. Let's read the text for this evening. If you have your Bibles with you, which we'd encourage you to do so, you can open up to 1 Peter, and we're in, still in chapter 1, towards the end now. We'll cross over into chapter 2 this evening, and we'll start reading from verse 22 of chapter 1. And just on that note... Um, we use the New International Version here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg because we're kind of an international church and everyone's welcome. You're welcome to obviously follow along in any Bible, although it is easier when we continually refer to the Bible if you do have an NIV in front of you, unless, unless you're the kind of person who likes to have like an ESV open and be like comparing every time there's a different word and wondering why the translators translated that a little bit differently. But be encouraged to bring along your Bible and read with us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, 2 verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. 
Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray as we start. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and enduring and which shall never pass away. We thank you that it's not an empty word, but a powerful word word it's able to affect new birth to give spiritual life to communicate to us divine love the love that you shared in all eternity past with your son jesus christ and with your spirit the holy spirit and which for all eternity to come you will share with us who have obeyed the truth of your gospel and begun calling on your name and lord jesus we pray that you would give us ears to hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church through your Apostle Peter. Holy Spirit, give us the desire for the Word of Christ, that we might grow up in our salvation, as Peter writes here. And convict us of the truth of the Gospel of Christ, that those who might be here, who have yet to partake, may receive grace and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let me start uh, this evening by throwing a, a theological term out there or at you, ecclesiology. You may have heard it before. If you've heard the word ecclesiology, you can raise your hand. Wow, that is a phenomenal response. You may have heard it before. You may not have. Obviously, you have not heard this word. Ecclesiology means the doctrine or teaching on or about the church, the doctrine or the teaching on or about the church. And it comes from two Greek words, first word, first word being logos, meaning word, and ecclesia, meaning church, therefore ecclesiology. The word about the doctrine, about the teaching about the church. I start with that word because it's not an understatement to say that the importance to me personally, Sam, of ecclesiology has grown massively in the last five to ten years of my life. Um, as the Lord has, in His grace, been revealing to me truths about the church, truths about the Christian life in regard to the church that I never knew, opening up to me vistas that I had never yet seen. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor now and I'm kind of involved with the church every day. I'm, this was even many years before that occurred. To say, on the one hand, that it's grown in, in importance massively for me, is that's one side of the story. The other side is that I've grown to love the church in a way that I had never really done, certainly not actively. I mean, I was never against the church. I was never hostile to the church, but I, I certainly didn't actively love it. I can remember in the very early days of my being here in Freiburg, in this church, well, that was a thing. I wasn't just in this church. I was kind of in three churches a little bit here and a little bit there. Uh, I won't tell you which the two other churches they were. Maybe that'll come out at some point. But I can remember many years ago how, how flaky, how non-committed I was to the church, both in attendance and in attitude. I remember um, with a group of people that I met here through the university and through the church, I remember we started a small group I was going to say I started a community group, but we couldn't have been a community group because we actually had no part of the community here. And we did, deliberately did not join ourselves to the church here. We wanted to stay separate and apart, do our own thing, 
not to have any accountability from the other brothers and sisters here, not to have any spiritual authority over us in a good way. It's kind of, for me, it's kind of insane to think about that now, that that's how I was back then, but that's where I was. But now, as a, as a pastor here, I spend a good deal of my time thinking about how by God's grace and His Holy Spirit, that's so essential, so not in my own effort, but by His grace and by His Spirit, we can make this church stronger in every way. And much of my pleading with God in prayer is given to asking Him to strengthen the fellowship here, to strengthen the church here, that we would truly be a church after God's own heart, that is, a church the way He desires the universal church to be, and therefore every local church to be as an expression of that universal church. And I read about these, these kind of things much as well, both in the Word of God, because it has much to say about the church, and also from, obviously, books by those with a love for the church and a desire to see the church live up to her name and her calling. And from my experience these last few years, direct experience in the pastoral leadership, it's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing to maintain a good, healthy church. And I think if we look around the landscape, kind of back through history, if we have a bit of an understanding, a little bit of church history, we can see that history is littered with failed churches for various reasons. We recall the picture that St. John gives us in the revelation of, of Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, with the lampstands where he warns the churches, I will remove that lampstand. I will remove my spirit, as it were, from the church, that a church which was, was once a church is no longer a church. It's not an easy thing to maintain a good, healthy church, let alone as a church grows stronger together. Not only are we all sinners, I'm very aware of my own sin. And if, if you're aware of your own sin, which hopefully you should be, you'll rec recognize that sin has a way of wrecking relationships. Just think about relationships between family members or between marriage partners or, or um, between best friends. Just how sin can creep in there and destroy, wreck relationships. Now you put a bunch of people together who are all sinners. How's that going to go? Not only that, we also have an enemy, we believe as Christians, working against us to destroy the church as the testimony of Christ to the nations. Our enemy loves nothing more than for the church to be defeated, to be disgraced, to be discouraged, to be divided, and to be diluted. And again, if we've got our eyes open, we read the news, we see all too often the attacks on the church. And living also in this very highly individualistic age, that's how I was those years ago when I thought, no, we don't need the church, I'll just do my own thing, please. The church often lacks true commitment. I mean, I was in three churches at once. How committed was I to any one of those churches? Not at all. Not at all. What makes a healthy church, though? I'm sure that if I opened up the question, which I'm not going to do right now, but if I open it up, we'd get different answers here tonight, here this evening. What makes a healthy church? What are the things that go into 
making sure that the church is healthy. I'm, I'm sure that we would hear answers like the worship, the worship of God, the teaching at the church, that the church needs to be actively involved in not con- being concentrated on itself, but reaching out, evangelizing. And we'd hear, no doubt, many other things as well. But in our text this evening that we just read uh, some minutes ago, Peter gives us his divinely inspired words on two core characteristics of a healthy church. Two core characteristics of a healthy church. There's, there's, these are by no means the only characteristics or core characteristics, but they are the two that Peter turns to at this point in his letter. Peter, of course, is writing to churches, not individuals. I said a moment ago, this is an individualistic age, and it tends to be that way, that we often read the Bible and think this is, this is just kind of a personal word to me. But Peter, as an apostle, he's writing to the church, so he's writing to, in one sense, yes, a, a collection, a gathering of individual Christians. The individual is not lost in Christianity. This is not communism but not just as individuals, as communities. And having exhorted them, having encouraged them, having called upon them, uh, last week we saw to be holy by appealing to that um, Old Testament text where the Lord revealed to Israel, be holy as I am holy, and Peter repeats it here to the people of God in the New Covenant, be holy as I am holy, each of you be holy in the church, He now shifts the focus to the church as a community of believers. So he's talking this week about how church happens together, not as um, a gathering of individuals, but how the common life happens together. And the two core characteristics he gives us for healthy churches here in this little text are firstly, sincere, deep, mutual love. Mutual love. If you don't know the word mutual, that is love for each other or love for one another. That's the first core characteristic. A healthy church is characterized by sincere, that is not fake, deep, mutual love, love for each other, for one another. And secondly, the place of the word of God. That is to say, a healthy church is not a program or a performance or an offer. And I will say that in German, an Angebot, because I hear so many people speak like that here. A healthy church is not an offer or a program or a performance that is presented to an audience at a weekly event. Rather... A healthy church is a community of common life, common meaning together, defined by Christian love. So life together and what is the guiding, defining principle of that life? Christian love. And a healthy church is not attuned to or on the same wavelength as or or defined by its interaction with or or dialogue with the culture or the zeitgeist, English word, that one, but it is a community at whose center is the Word of God. The center around which this community revolves 
is the Word of God because we believe as Christians that the Word of God is not simply dead letters, black letters on white pages, but that the Word of God, as we read a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 40, is, well, sorry, Peter quotes it from Isaiah chapter 40, is living and enduring. We know from the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is living and active. So we can actually commune with, have fellowship with God through His Word. And therefore, a church, a healthy church, takes God's Word seriously. Not lightly, not flippantly, not jokingly. Yes, with all joy. The Lord has a sense of humor. But we take His Word seriously. And that will be seen. How do we see that the Word of God is taken seriously in a church? That is seen by that word being taught. I was talk, talking to a friend uh, today about uh, ministry in some parts of the world where he said the, 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 the teaching that, um, that we aim to aspire to as Calvary chapels, namely verse by verse through the Bible, is in some places so unknown that there are some churches where the Bible is not even opened in a service or in a sermon. That's not taking the word seriously. Taking the word seriously means opening the Bible and realizing it has something to say here and now. It's not just old things that were culturally relevant at one point but have nothing to say to our lives now. No. This is the enduring, living, eternal word of God. And that word will be taught, it will be understood, and it will be obeyed. Peter talks here, doesn't he, about obedience to the truth. It will be obeyed. In Acts 2 and chapter 42, which describes the very first church at Jerusalem, we read about a number of core characteristics of churches there, and I'm going to leave the others out, but the first two are these. We read there, Acts 2.42, they, the Christians at Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, that is, the word about Christ, the gospel, and the fellowship, that is, the common life defined by love. So let's look at this love and read with me again uh, verse 22 here of 1 Peter 1. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. So hearkening back to chapter 1 and verse 2, where he says that, um, that we as Christians have been sanctified by the work of the Spirit. Peter writes, now that you've become sanctified, now that you've become purified, now that you've been made holy by the Holy Spirit, and this is because you have obeyed the truth. And what he means by that is that they have submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've acknowledged the authority of Jesus Christ over them in the gospel, that the Lord Jesus is their Lord. He is not a Lord who puts us under a heavy, burdensome yoke of slavery. He says, my yoke is light, and my burden is easy. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, but He is the Lord. So they've obeyed the truth, they've submitted to the gospel. That means to say the gospel is not some kind of offer, some kind of invitation alone, 
In, in one sense, yes, it is an invitation. Come, or to whoever is thirsty, come and drink of the water of life. That is an invitation. But it is more than that. It's a proclamation. It's a, a, uh, an if, yeah, an oiangelion. That is a proclamation of reality, of lordship. You may not know this, but a, the word behind gospel, oiangelion, is the proclamation of a new ruler in the Roman Empire. So when Augustus Caesar became Caesar, there was an oiangelion, a gospel that went out to say Caesar is the Lord. He's brought peace, and he did bring peace, and it's time to submit to him. And the gospel, the oiangelion of Jesus Christ, connects up to this. It goes out saying, Jesus Christ is the true Lord. He's the true king of the world. Not, not Caesar, but Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are called to obey the gospel. And for those of you taking notes, we won't read it now, but you can see that in Paul's preaching in Acts 17.30. Another verse is 1 John 3.23, and there are others. The gospel is to be obeyed, and that's what Peter refers to here. Now we see here also, the gospel has many purposes, many reasons for it. Ultimately, we would say it's for God's glory. But here... Peter brings another purpose. He says, so that, in verse 22, so that you have sincere love for each other. So they've been purified by the work of the Spirit, and that has come about by them obeying the truth, submitting to the gospel, and the result of that, or or where that should lead, is so that you have sincere love for one another. Or, sorry, sincere love for each other. The word used here for for each other or love for each other is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. You may know that that is the byword of the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. That's the word here. Mutual love. Mutual love between siblings, brothers and sisters. So the sincere love, and we all, we all know what fake love is, and it's really hard to take when someone's kind of trying to fake loving on you, isn't it? Pretty hard. The sincere love, which the gospel points to, is firstly, of course, a love for God, but then also, and this must, this must occur, a love for each other. This is what I was missing all those years ago, in one sense, I was claiming to love God, but when it came to actually sincerely loving the brothers and sisters, that was missing. Firstly, a love for God, then also a love for each other, for our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we see this so clearly in the New Testament. The apostles Peter, Paul, and John all communicate this central part of our faith. I mean, Paul, you might remember in the book of Corinthians with the chapter 13 he says if I don't have love basically I'm like a clanging cymbal I'm missing the key part but open up if you will to first John we'll see the apostle John joins the apostle Paul here in confirming this first John 4 and we read the verses 19 through 21 first John 4 19 through 21 the apostle apostle John the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple perhaps most close to Jesus through the time of his earthly ministry. He writes here, We love 
because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, and we can see each other here this evening, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And here, back in First Peter, Peter gives us a command. That is to say, it's a commandment. It's something that we are called to do. And it's here in the second half of verse 22. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. Commentator on this text writes, if it's the ideal that Christians should love their brothers and sisters, that's what we just saw, that's kind of the, the result, the point, the purpose of the gospel, that's the ideal, that Christians should love their brothers and sisters, then let them love one another. That's the command. Let's get on and do it. So it's a clear and direct command. We must take action without ifs and buts. Without ifs and buts. Peter assumes here that Christians can and must love one another. And in this Peter is in full agreement with the Lord Jesus Christ, with our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us both the same commandment and demonstrates it for us. And I want to spend a little bit of time in John just showing you that, just showing you how clear and obvious this is, that it's Jesus who is the origin of this command and he demonstrates it for us as well. So if you want to join me, We'll be reading a couple of verses in John 13 and John 15. In John 13, we read in verse 34. John 13, 34. Jesus speaking here to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. On Thursday of Holy Week, he says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's by this characteristic, our mutual love, our Philadelphia for each other, that people will know that we belong to Jesus Christ. Not by the amount of Bible knowledge or theological knowledge which we might have, which is, again, not a bad thing. Not by our doctrine of the end times. Not by our understanding of baptism or communion. But by our love for one another. This is what shows the world that we are Jesus' disciples. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then if you just flip over to chapter 15. Jesus repeats this in verse 9 of chapter 15. This is all one Large. This is the testimony that Jesus gives to his disciples on that Thursday evening before he's betrayed later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says there in John 15 and verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I'm not just giving you a command, I've, I'm doing it myself. I'm demonstrating, I'm showing you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
Again, this is not burdensome. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the way to true Christian joy. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no, has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. And finally, the second part of, chapter one, of um, the first verse of chapter 13, again, flipping back a page or two. There we read in 13.1b about Jesus having loved his own, that is his disciples, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is to say, what Jesus did now by loving them to the end, washing their feet and then going to the cross to pay the penalty for their sin, dying in their stead and securing for them eternal life, that was his demonstration of love to the end. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. So we see here that Jesus... Jesus, and this must always be the case as Christians, we don't want to be doing things over here apart from Jesus. We want to be doing things with Jesus. Jesus is our model and example to follow. If we want to take stock, if, if you're sitting here tonight thinking, do I love the brothers and sisters? Do I have Philadelphia? If you want to take stock of whether you've understood this command, of whether you've got it, then we need but look at Jesus and look at his life and say, am I following his example? Love one another as I, in the same way I have loved you. That's the example. That's the, that's the measuring stick. And that, obviously, we're not going to measure up perfectly. But that's the, the motivation to be like Jesus. Again, not in order because we have to strive to improve ourselves morally. But as Jesus himself says, in this, your joy will be made complete. There is a true joy which comes from self-forgetfulness of actually not dwelling on my own thoughts and my own worries and my own concerns or my own failures, even my own sins. It's amazing the freedom and the exhilaration that can come of being self-forgetful and laying down my life metaphorically or literally for others. It's a great thing. And those of you who have had that experience will know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's funny how even though we know that, we seem to be such slow learners in returning to that way of life. At least that's the way it is for me. So therefore, um, the question becomes practical for us. As we heard before from that commentator, no ifs and buts. We've got to get on and do it. Love one another. So the question practically is, are you looking to Jesus and doing what he has commanded. Think about, and I do this, I try to do this often, and I try to do this this week as I was thinking about these verses, thinking about my heart and my attitude when it comes to the brothers and sisters in the church. When I'm sitting here at church, when I'm coming into church, um, obviously not just the Sunday gatherings or the Wednesday gatherings, but this also happens in community groups, in small groups, in prayer meetings. When you meet somebody from the fellowship or from or another Christian during the week, what's my heart and my attitude like towards individual believers and towards the gathered church 
together. What's the attitude of my heart when that baby is kind of loud at Church at Five? Apparently this is a thing we hear. Babies are being very quiet tonight. Everyone's very quiet tonight. I don't know what's going on, but um, isn't we like, do we, do we love that, that mother and father and baby or are we irritated? The person, as we're singing the songs, the person who's kind of standing next to us with bad breath and no tune, but who believes that singing loud is a virtue. What do we think about that person? I mean, these are, these are uh, perhaps amusing examples, except that they're not, because obviously they do annoy us. Or the person that we see at church uh, every week, but who we've never actually spoken to, we just see that person, we kind of we take stock that they're there, but what's our, what's our attitude towards them? Are we, content, are we content to simply be disinterested? I think we have to think through these things carefully. Peter is concerned here that we follow the example of the Master, Jesus Christ. He's not giving us a new commandment here. He's repeating an old commandment that Jesus himself gave. And he speaks here of mutual love. This is not a command that you can fulfill by fanning the flames of your own personal love for God. You cannot fulfill this command by doing that because he's not speaking here of love for God. He's speaking here of mutual love, the love for the brothers and sisters. And this, he's saying, this is a characteristic of a healthy church, that we're really there for each other, that we really bear with each other, even when there are things which ordinarily might annoy us or anger us or frustrate us, that we actually carry each other's burdens, that we confront in a loving way each other's sins. That's what it also means to love someone. You don't let them go down the wrong path that we encourage each other's faith, that we help each other out practically, that we actually commit to each other. There's no way to do these things if you're not committed to the fellowship. You cannot confront somebody's sin. You cannot encourage someone's faith. You cannot carry someone's burden. You cannot bear with a person if you are not committed to the fellowship, if you're not already convinced of the need to follow Jesus' command here and love one another. It's impossible actually commit to each other by committing to the fellowship, to the church, to realize this is not entertainment. This is not an angebot. This is about gospel community. Now, the motive, the motive and the ability to obey this commandment to love, that comes from the new birth and the new life that it opens up. And so this brings us to the second characteristic that we'll look at just briefly this evening, namely the word of God. The Word of God. So we saw these two core characteristics, mutual love and a community that gathers around the Word of God. So just coming back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. The Word of God. We saw in chapter 1, at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, there was a cry of joyful praise and thanksgiving a cry of joyful praise and thanksgiving to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, First Peter 3, sorry, First Peter 1, 3, because 
He has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is to say, new birth or being born again is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Or James 1.17.18, for those who have been in church for five a long time, you'll remember that we also taught on this verse when we went through James. James 1.17-18, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And in our second message here, I think Brandon said this is number six, in our second message, Brandon looked more intensely at the role of the Father in choosing to give us new birth, to use the language now of this verse 23. That's exactly what we read here in verse 23. You've been born again. How are you born again? Not by something perishable. Peter kind of loves this word perishable and imperishable. He's always talking about this is perishable, that's imperishable. Not by something imperishable, not by something that fails, not by something that can spoil, but by what is imperishable, namely the living and enduring word of God. And that's what he goes on to show you by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 to show you that grass withers, flowers wither, they all go the way of the world. But what Last forever, what is eternal, what is invincible, that is the enduring word, the living word of God. That is to say that it is through the preaching, and by preaching I mean the announcing, the proclamation of the word of God that people are born again. That's what Peter writes here in verse 25 after he's given us the quote from the Old Testament. This enduring living word, this was the word that was preached to you. And the word actually in the original language is not the word that's usually translated preached. It's actually the word that is translated often um, evangelized. So he's talking about this is the gospel word that was proclaimed to you. The gospel word is the word of God that is living and enduring. He links up the gospel of Jesus with this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah, and he says it's, it's actually the word about Jesus Christ, and that's the living, eternal, enduring word of God. That's the word which made you, which, which made you alive, which gave you new birth, that God used to choose, uh, to choose to give you new birth. That's the word that was preached, the gospel that was proclaimed to you, that was preached to you. So it's through the evangelizing of the word of God or the spreading of the word of God that people are born again. So yes, on that note, we do need to think about context, yes. And we, yes, we need, as Paul writes in Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. So when we're thinking about, so what I mean, thinking about context if we, if we simply take this at face value and understand what Peter is saying here, he's saying it's the, actual, it's the gospel of Jesus that went into this area, now modern-day Turkey. So it wasn't Israel. These were people who didn't know the living God. They had no history of the prophets and the law. They had no history with God. They were outside the communion of Israel. And yet, boldly... 
This word was communicated to them, the word about Jesus Christ, and that is what led to their being born again. That is what God used that they might be born again. And so I think in one sense, we need to have a simple reliance on the gospel. I think so often I see when it comes to evangelism, and I'm as guilty as this as anybody, that we think, if I just actually preach the gospel, people will be offended. People will be upset. They won't get it. They won't understand it. So I need to find all these other ways of kind of, kind of, kind of wooing them to get a bit closer, you know? Free lunches, nice pictures, I don't know. Apps, I don't know. And again, there's, we need to think about context. And yes, we need to speak the truth in love. But Peter here is reminding us, he's encouraging us. In the midst of persecution, these Christians are encouraged to do this. Rely on the means of grace that God himself has given. He's the father. He's the one who chooses to give us new birth. He's it's under his control. Let's rely on the evangelizing with the gospel word. And that's in one sense, again, why we seek here at this church to, to model this core characteristic, to be a church which is saturated by or which is gathered around the word of God. Where the word is taken seriously, as I said before, that means we seek to teach it, to understand it, to obey it, to live by it. And finally, moving on to our, our last part tonight. And again, we could have put the focus tonight on these first three verses of chapter 2. I didn't. We just want to briefly look at them. We see that we see two things here. We see that the word is not only for our rebirth, it's not only for our being born again that God uses this word. It's not only for our conversion at the beginning of our Christian life, it is the driver of all spiritual growth. It's the driver of all spiritual growth. That is to say, um, Peter's understanding here, if we skip forward to um, chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, I'll read them very briefly. Like newborn babies crave, that's a strong word, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation and here's a key now verse three now that you have tasted that the lord is good so the picture peter has is not okay i suppose we better read the bible it's kind of the christian thing to do that's not the picture the picture is, I have tasted how good the Lord is. I have tasted his mercies. I have tasted his grace. I have tasted his love. I have so much, as we were praying here before the service, so much to be thankful for, and I want more. Like a newborn baby that craves milk. When that baby wants milk, it wants milk. If it doesn't get it, you're going to hear about it. That's the attitude. Peter's like, oh, I want more. And this isn't a dead letter. I can commune with Jesus Christ because this word is living and active. And by this spiritual milk, namely the word, this is, by the way, this is not, 
we shouldn't misunderstand because at other times in the New Testament, Paul criticizes some churches and says, you guys really should be on to the meat stage, but I'm still having to give you milk because you're not getting with it. That's not what, he's, what Peter's saying. It's a different picture. Milk here is a positive thing. Like the newborn babies crave, desire strongly, pure spiritual milk. And what does this spiritual milk lead to? By it, you may grow up in your salvation. This is the key to spiritual growth, to growing towards, and Peter has here in view, salvation at the last day. Salvation for Peter is something that has passed. You have been saved. Present, you are being saved through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And future, at the final day, your salvation will be fully complete. Remember, we looked at that. Right now, it's stored up for us in heaven. It's imperishable, to use his favorite word again. Nothing can happen to it. It'll be revealed at the last day. That's where we're headed, and we need to grow up into that. And how do we do that? Well, ultimately, through this spiritual, spiritual milk, which is the word of God. So just let me drum that point home. This is not, uh, this is, I've tasted that the Lord is good, and I want more. And when I say word, this is word in all its forms. This is word in prayer. This is word in worship. This is word in private Bible study. This is word in group Bible study. This is word by encouraging, exhorting each other in the fellowship because you're committed to it and you want to encourage other people. And this is word through evangelizing to non-believers. This is word to discuss in terms of wrestling with things. This is word preached and taught in the church. That's the first thing. And finally, negatively, Peter is saying there are things here which will destroy this Christian love, this mutual Christian love, which is such a core characteristic of a healthy church. These things are going to destroy it. And then what I mentioned at the start, which were in, in a super magnified way visible in the First World War, which led to the deaths of millions. As Christian nations, nations that had had the gospel for over a thousand years, a church in every village, yet we did not heed that word. Peter said, the first apostle, rid yourselves, get rid of. The word means take off, throw it away. All malice all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy and slander of every kind. Those things will not only destroy the mutual love of the fellowship, but they will prevent spiritual growth. If you stay in these things, you will not grow in the Lord. You will not grow spiritually. And so Peter is pleading with them. He's pleading with them, get rid of these things. If we think about what we heard from Jesus in John's gospel, what we heard through the Apostle John in his letter, that we can't claim to love God if we don't love our brothers and sisters, then how can we honestly think that there's any place in the church for these kind of behaviors? There isn't. They must be put aside. And again, we, we know we fall short. We need the Lord's mercy. We come back to him again and again. So we invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing a final song. And uh, in that song, we'll have the option to, if, you, if you'd like to be prayed for. Maybe you realize, like I realized many years ago when God finally revealed it to me, 
I need, I need the Philadelphia. I need to have that mutual love. I'm kidding myself if I can keep being so standoffish about committing to the fellowship of God. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're like, my heart is numb. I need someone to pray for me to rekindle my desire to yearn for that pure spiritual milk. Or maybe the Lord has spoken to you just now. And even as I read those words, without going into specific examples of envy, slander, hypocrisy, deceit, malice, you're thinking, yeah, I I need to confess that. I need to confess that. Then come up here and be prayed for.